Welcome to the Overford Podcast. In this episode, Jason and Guy are joined once again by Carly Thorpe, partner at law firm Walker Morris. The trio discuss methods for avoiding disputes. What's the best way to minimise the risk of legal fees on a project? How should you manage your contract and ensure the best possible outcome? In terms of avoiding disputes, so we discussed adjudication, arbitration, litigation. What tips could you give for avoiding disputes? Well, you've generally both agreed a contract, both parties. My blunt suggestion will be to do what it said in the contract. You've agreed your rules and how you're going to operate the construction project or whatever it is. Just do what it says. You've got to keep records, keep them records. If it says you've got to submit a programme, put a programme in and talk and communicate. That is the essence of most of the disputes is people not understanding what they've signed up for, not operating the contract and not communicating with the other side. So it, it's getting those things right early in my head, picking up the phone. They're my top tip. Do what it says and do what you said you were supposed to do. <laughs> and I suppose you've essentially, the parties have agreed that contract, haven't they? They'd be bound yeah. by it. You're all grown-ups. You've signed it. Do what it says. It's not. It shouldn't be that difficult. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, no, it is. Because personalities get involved. Um, so then you can probably say, get the contract right as well. Oh, yes. Because... Yeah. Understand what you're signing. You know, get advice from solicitors and, um, you know, actually understand what these mean. There's so many obligations under an EC or design and build contract, which a lot of people, a lot of find, a lot of people find don't understand what they're supposed to do. You know, the the NEC, is, the more and more I work under it, the more and more I'm liking it because it's core, but it's still an administrative heavy contract. And but it, in theory, it should work. You won't believe how many times I've come across it where no one submitted a program as they're supposed to do on a monthly basis. Uh, or every time there's a new compensation event, or they don't submit an early warning, or they thought, oh, I've I told them about it, but you didn't formally record it in, uh, as you're supposed to do. And the contracts are so heavily amended now by main contractors and developers to their benefit uh, that it makes there's a lot of condition precedence in there to, for you to be able to get any extension of time or any more money or loss of expense or even a variation. So it's what getting do you mean by condition precedent. A condition precedent is, Carly, please step in if I'm wrong, <laughs> um, is where a condition says within like the NEC, you've got within eight weeks of being aware of a matter or an event, you've got to raise a compensation event notice for that to become a valid compensation event of when you've really become aware of it. And if you don't, you lose your right to it. Is that correct, Carly? <laughs> It is. Yes, Jason. Well done. Um, (laughs) So, I mean, yes, the the idea is that often the contract will have strict requirements that you need to comply with. And if you don't comply with them, you can lose all entitlement. So the NEC is a good example of where you can lose all entitlement to any extra time or money if you fail to notify in time. And the courts have said that, yeah, that's a binding requirement. And it might seem really harsh that you lose all entitlement, but that's what the parties have agreed to. So I, I think disputes can be avoided if there is more of a mind shift that the contract isn't just something that you agree at the beginning and then you go back to in the event that there is a dispute. The contract itself is actually a project management tool that you need to comply with to minimise risk and minimise issues throughout the project. And that's things like, as you said, Jason, picking up the phone, communicating when there's a problem, notifying the other party of an issue rather than just waiting until the end of the project or, you know, hoping that if you'll ignore it, it'll go away. Um, 
So many problems, you know, so many of the disputes that I see could have been avoided at an earlier stage if the parties had acted differently. And so I know we're talking about avoiding disputes and so potentially avoiding needing to deal with lawyers and incur legal costs. But I do think that there is an inherent benefit and an inherent cost saving to getting a lawyer involved on a project at an early stage to advise as to what you need to do during the project in order to comply with the contract so that you get your notices in on time, don't inadvertently deprive yourself of some entitlement just because you didn't know that you needed to serve the notice. So one thing that I do a lot of are workshops for parties at the start of a project where we'll sit down with all of the site team and go through the, essentially we do like a flow chart of in this situation, this is what you need to do. So they know what notices need to be served and when and what records they need to be keeping and to make sure that all of that good stuff in the contract is actually done in practice. Yeah, we we, we do something similar with our uh, clients and contractors. It's, you know, it's explaining this is um, what, what you need to produce at as and when. Um, if, you know, say you get a drawing, it's a new they put another door on example. You've got to raise that as an early warning. It's going to be a time and cost implication, potentially. Or if it's a JCT, it's just a, is, is a variation um, request. Um, or it's a relevant, that's a relevant event. And they may have, is it a relevant matter? Depends when it is to put in a door, but exit. Um, so it's, but I find a lot of contractors and subcontractors don't want to rock the boat for want of a better description. They want to try to keep it nicely. And the, you know the the relationship nice on size, so they don't raise notices. And they don't they don't comply with um you know the strict requirements of this contract they've signed, which is shoved in a drawer somewhere. So uh, what well, my advice is, see what notices you've got to you got to give on you what and when, and then sit down at your pre let pre let meeting, your pre start, saying right. This is the early warning notice template I'm going to use. Um, this is the um, variation schedule I'm going to use. You know, these are the scheduler rates. You get these things agreed um, and be upfront about it. And if the other side's saying, oh, you're going to be really contractual. So I'm not. This is what you've asked me to do. And this is what we've got to do. As a, to, you know, to administer this contract properly. It's what you've asked us to do and what we've signed up to. So I'm just set, setting out what we've got to do. And you shouldn't be, people shouldn't be afraid of that, of having that, these difficult conversations early. Yeah. So I think it comes back to communication, collaboration, getting the right advice early doors so that you've got a contract which is workable. Yeah. It sets the rules of engagement, like. Yeah. It's like drawing a setting about, it's not a battleground, but it's setting, setting the rules and the, it's like the, the software you can get for uh, we've, I've been involved on a dispute on an NEC where they had some, something called SEMA um, that just set out everything you had to do on the NEC. It, you raise an early warning through it and it flagged up a little reminder. Now, you know, you've got to follow it up <laughs> to the other side. Um, and then you've got, it, or you raised a compensation event notice and you issued your clause 32 programs through it. I thought it were a great piece of kit. And it was very, you know, it's administered simply because this software makes you do it. And if you write that in your contract, I think you're laughing personally. So that's a tip. Not that, not that a, I've got shares in CMA. A tip, a tip <laughs> for the NEC, if you're undertaking an NEC contract, use um, CMA. Yeah. Or something similar. <laughs> but yeah, I think it is. The, the, that Anything to help manage your software, manage your process. I've seen it on a JCT as well. It's not just NEC, but um, there are software platforms, document management software, which help uh, avoid these disputes because it's everyone's got access to these records. Um, but I say records, we could talk forever about that. Um, so in terms of records then, <laughs> <laughs> is that another way of avoiding disputes? Yeah. 
A lot of disputes have been involved in where we've got very little records um, and it's difficult to evidence your claim without all these records. And the records can span from site diaries, labour allocation sheets, programmes, photographs. And if you've got all them in a in a plate, you're going to be, not only are you just going to be aware of what's going on and in I'm probably readily telling the side, look at this, what can I do about it? So you're avoiding, you're notifying them early anyway. You're, you're going to be better placed if it does get into a dispute that you've got all this information, the, all these ammunition in your arsenal. Like, you, you're not, and the other side's going to see you making these records. Um, you know, you site signing in books, you know, they, they are this biometric stuff now. And it's, 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 it's hard to argue that this guy didn't set, he scanned his fingerprint at two o'clock on a Friday afternoon when we were going home. Well, you could argue calibration of the biometrics and other stuff, you know. It might be someone else's mucky fingerprint. Yeah, it's a swing, so he just came back and didn't scan again. But, so yeah. so records, as as Carly said earlier, in terms of adjudication, documents only, the records become paramount. Compelling. If you've got a photograph, what's dated, saying, um, I was... It's a program says I should have been installing my second fix electrics on that wall, and you've got a picture by the twenty third of February, and you've got a picture on the thirtieth of March, where that wall's not even built. That's you know, it, it's it's compelling if you're not down to build that wall. <laughs> I suppose. Um, what what does a good record look like? Date stamp photographed, <laughs> geolocated. I mean, yeah. I see the. The key thing that I hear when I mention records to clients is that the people on site just struggle to have the time to put together a detailed record. So when you think of things like a site diary, you you could be just trying to get the work done or rushing to get home and call it a day at night and not want to spend an hour writing down everything that's happened that day. And that, that seems to be the principal complaint that I see. So one thing that I've seen implemented recently is voice notes. So, I mean, so many of us in the construction industry drive around a lot as part of the job. So I've got clients who, while they're driving around in their cars, they'll just record themselves talking about what happened that day. So to make, you know, a voice note record of a site diary rather than a written site diary. I think that actually has quite a good psychological benefit in that they were sort of offloading everything that had happened that day onto the voice note before they then got home. So it was a good kind of decompress as well. But but that actually worked as a good record that saved time. Yeah, in terms of recording information and what recording thoughts, I think audio records are good. However, in a number of adjudications, I've seen downloads of WhatsApp messages, uh, mm. MP4 audio files i think it's very difficult to get across your to, to, to rely on those audio records and whatsapp find parties i think whatsapp should be banned. struggle to narrate <laughs> those records we've got I've, I've, I've been involved in a dispute where the whole day work account was agreed on a whatsapp account there were thousands and thousands of messages with mm. pictures and it was just so you know to to I felt sorry for the adjudicator who submitted this one. Um, it was just so hard to evidence, like link one acceptance to a snapshot on a WhatsApp. And it's just, yeah, they've taken records, but but it's it's articulating that. I think it should be banned from every contract. It should be a standard remote, standard <laughs> condition, no WhatsApp, personally. <laughs> I mean, I think I think the issue with WhatsApp is that it's so informal. So it. 
it encourages people to perhaps be a bit more candid than they would in a formal email, which depending on, you know, what, what side you're on, which party you're working for could be a good thing or a bad thing. But I think it can be quite dangerous in that respect. Like if you there's a WhatsApp message, if you don't pay me, I'm walking off site, that type of thing. Exactly. <laughs> not, yeah, not, that you might not, not put in a formal email. <laughs> <laughs> so I think yeah, you, pick yeah, up the you probably need to be careful what you're recording. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you you don't need to provide absolute records or to prove your case necessarily. What's the burden of proof? Well, that I'll I'll take that one. It's um the the balance yeah. of probabilities. So, I mean, in in criminal cases, you've got to prove something beyond all reasonable doubt. But in the what's called civil cases, so like construction disputes that don't involve crimes, um. It's just the balance of probabilities. So essentially, it's more likely than not that a cost has been incurred. So often, you know, if you can provide some invoices, that might be enough to demonstrate all of the cost, even though you've not got every single invoice, for example. Um, it, it really depends on looking at all of the evidence as a whole and seeing, is it more likely than not that, that something's happened, that this particular cost has been incurred? Yeah, so in terms of... you've there's a hundred line items provide 60 uh, prove 60 of the hundred then it becomes more likely than not that you've incurred the cost i'd like to see it for an extract from a cost system rather than a hundred line items in a spreadsheet you get 20 minutes <laughs> but that that you know that's that's my I think that's the balance. If it looks like it's come from a cost system, I think that's there is a case on that. Um, I can't remember the name of it, but um, there is a you know to to on the balance of probabilities that that is a valid cost system, and that's a true record of their accounts. If that's backed up by um, their accountant, for example, um, I think that's that's a good balance of you know that they've expended that. So. I'd say. Yeah, I mean, I think it's about pulling together the best evidence that you can to support your claim or to defend a claim. But the more records you have, the easier it is to do that. And, you know, while you're going through a project day to day, you often can't predict where a dispute's going to come from. So it can be hard to know what are the important things to record or, you know, you, you can have really detailed records, but you've not put that one thing that actually turns into a dispute. But the more detail you put down, the more likely it is that you will capture that crucial piece of evidence. Yeah, so I suppose it's the narration around those records, isn't it? What they're actually proving, essentially. Yeah, and it's how you store them, so you can you can you can easily access them all. Some of my commissioners going in can articulate and understand in a manner and speed um, what's gone on, really. So the third party looking in can understand it. So that's the it's, it's getting a good system up and running. I suggest. Just on the um, avoidance of disputes tips, one one tip that I wanted to mention, because a, a recent case came out about this. Um, so Bellis and Sky House that came out the other week, um, which was a adjudication enforcement case. But the key point of it was um, a party had served a termination notice one day early because they had calculated the number of days incorrectly against what was required under the contract. So if you need to serve a notice, just make sure you spend some time calculating the required time period correctly. So in, in that case, it was meant to be clear days, which means that you, you start counting the day after the day that something actually happens. Um, and they hadn't done that. And so they were a day early. 
And so it's so easy just to get that time period wrong. So I'd always try and get a, you know, get a consultant or a lawyer or just someone who's not been involved in the project to just check that time period for you, get a second opinion so that you don't inadvertently serve a notice too early or too late. Yeah, like the old joinery saying, you know, measure twice, cut once. Yep. So, yep, thanks again for joining Jason and I. Yeah, thank you, Kelly. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Overford Podcast. We hope you found it useful. Although every effort has been made to ensure the accuracy of its contents, no reliance should be placed on it, and the podcast should not be construed as legal advice. We hope you'll join us for the next one.